now to John chapter 2. Uh, this is an easy title, A Wedding Feast, and so we find Jesus on his way uh, to the highlight of every man's calendar, a wedding. Uh, in Canaan, it's about eight miles from his hometown in Nazareth, a wedding. I'm glad one guy laughed. That was helpful. Um, but uh, I guess everyone else likes weddings. I just didn't know I was the only guy that was rather not. But um, a wedding that likely involved relatives or close friends and at which his mother played some role in planning and executing. So we're going to see him come to a wedding, uh, understand that this is not some random event that's taking place on his calendar. This is something he'd known about. This is something that was planned. This is something that his family's involved in. And so the narrative from chapter one, when you're looking at John, the narrative from chapter one continues into chapter two. And that's why we see them talking about the third day. The third day is referencing the third day from when Nathaniel was called. And so as we walk through this first, when I say week, and don't put it in a Sunday to Saturday or a Monday to Sunday framework because the days don't lay out that way necessarily, but it is a week in the sense of it being seven days. And so we have gone through John the Baptist. We're out outside of Jerusalem. We're at a small town in Bethany across the Jordan. We have John the Baptist baptizing. Uh, Christ has already walked through his temptation in the desert, and now he's coming back with some of those disciples. And so after two days of travel, they arrive on the scene. This is verses 1 through 2, and it says in the third day, that's again from Nathanael's conversation, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And you can imagine that likely Nathanael had his own invitation. Uh, some of the other disciples that were connected to Christ uh, in, their, in that culture, they would have been invited with Jesus because they would be friends of his, connections of his. They're walking together. And so it's very natural uh, for them to be invited to the wedding. And weddings were a big deal. They are a big deal. Uh, but we make a mistake if we look at this wedding like a typical Western wedding. We have a wedding and it, and it, and it ties up a day or an afternoon or an evening. Uh, their weddings in that part of the world and during this time uh, were quite involved, lasting for a week. This is the culmination of a betrothal period where they were committed to each other, but separate living conditions. And so they would, if you broke a betrothal, it would be divorce in their mind. And this is the culmination of that betrothal period where the husband, the groom would go to the bride's home, would take her to his home, and there they would have a feast for a week, providing food and beverage for the whole time. And the groom and his family are the ones that would pay for this. It was their job to make sure there was enough food and drink for that whole week and for anyone that would show. And it is at this important event that John begins sharing the signs of Jesus, the miracles, written so that we might believe signs that begin while attending a wedding. And there's some significance to that. And that's what we look at when we look at the scene. Why in the world does John start off at a wedding? And so be before we embark on what happened, and this is the first official miracle that Christ does in his whole ministry. John's the only one to record it. But before the miracle happens, before he displays his glory, we take note and learn what he's teaching by his presence at a wedding. Because there's significance there. And we see the affirmation of marriage. It's a sacred union where a man and a woman publicly commit to be faithful to one another, where they become one. 
and where they begin a new family. And thus, his attendance at a marriage, which brings sanctification to a marriage, which affirms what the Old Testament has said, affirms what we see in Genesis chapter 1, is also an affirmation of the family unit, something that is, in our society, consistently undermined. And so if you want to look to Christ and be a believer and, and say, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're believing in what he also affirmed. And so as we live and work and function in a society that's stripped, I mean, everyone is trying to undermine the family unit, to destroy it, to redefine it. And what you see by Christ's presence, even at this wedding, where this first miracle takes place, is an affirmation of the sacred union, but also the family unit, what our society attacks. And to be honest with you, uh, there were the groups, thinking groups, societies that also disdained marriage. The essence would dis, dis push marriage off. You look at the Roman Catholic Church and they, they elevate the priest not being married. Well, that, that's not something that should be elevated. They misuse Scripture. And so as we dive in here, we find that Christ, in complete contrast to maybe some groups of the day, and definitely in contrast to our society, is affirming marriage and the family. And so Jesus is here at a wedding, his presence affirming that important union, that important family, but also showing us the difference between his ministry and John the Baptist. When we leave John the Baptist, it's always a man in a wilderness. He's always out uh, and people are coming to him. And what we're going to find with Christ's ministry as we work through the gospel of John is that he's not out, and it's not to, to make any knock against John the Baptist. This is what God called him to do. But as we see Jesus Christ come into the world, he does exactly that. He goes to them. He's connecting with people. He's interacting with them. He will come to the world, and he's going to connect in the everyday circumstances and difficulties of life, bringing the light of truth, bringing his gospel to them. And so as we dive into the miracles, as we really ramp up the life of Christ, and that's what we're about to walk through, what the Holy Spirit inspired John to write, which we know drives us to a singular purpose, to believe so that you'll have eternal life in his name. We recognize that he's in and functioning in the world. And, and I've put as a note for myself and for us, it's something we should be replicating as believers as well, that as we engage with the world, we're to bring the truth to the world, that we are uh, involved, we're not distancing ourselves, we're not isolating ourselves, we're not putting ourselves in a bubble. The, the monasteries of the past, they were not a biblical model for reaching the world with the gospel. It's not what God has left us here to do. And so we see Christ exemplifying that from the get-go. Here he is at a wedding feast amongst people, participating in life, affirming what he said in Genesis 1, now again, Christ is affirming now in John 2, again, by his presence at a wedding, but also showing us how he would minister to the world and how we as his children are called to minister, to be a part, to be involved. Yet after uh, Jesus arrives at the wedding, there comes a huge and potentially embarrassing problem as he's soon confronted with the situation. If you look at verses 3 through 5, it says, And when they wanted wine, which means they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And that's probably one of the more awkward phrases we see in Scripture, and we see Christ saying, 
His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And so what we find is that the groom and family have run out of wine and that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is obviously involved in the wedding. She is executing or helping this wedding unfold. Now, running out of provisions at the wedding was considered a significant faux pas in their culture. Now, I know that if you have a wedding today and you can't seat everybody and you run out of food, it's embarrassing, but that embarrassment ends after a, a, a period of time and you shrug your shoulders or you blame all the guests that weren't, weren't supposed to be there, whatever it may be. You blame the caterer. Whatever you need to do, you can pass the buck on that. And at some point, you walk away from it. Uh, running out of provisions at their wedding, especially in what would can be considered a shame culture uh, that goes there, uh, the groom and his family were held legally liable for this. If you were attending a wedding and you didn't get your stake, so to speak, you could sue the groom and his family and you would win that lawsuit. There's documentation even of groomsmen suing the groom because the gift he gave them was not adequate for what they did for him and they won the lawsuit. That'll make you think, don't have any groomsmen, right? That's what my, my takeaway would be like, small wedding. You know, do a small wedding. Don't put yourself at risk. But I want you to feel the weight of this circumstance. And so here is Mary as a family member helping. A lot of commentators think this might be cousins, that there's some obviously familiar connection that's there. And here you are, and this groom is now, and his family have their back against the wall. What are they going to do? What's going to take place and it's into this situation that we get see set up an important dialogue between Jesus and his mother, which in all honesty is an awkward thing to hear. A dialogue, though, that articulates an important change to their relationship. It's done with grace and love. And so our attention turns, and this is one of the more critical parts of the whole story, is his conversation with his mom. And so we turn our attention to Jesus addressing his mother. Now, Jesus' mother, upon encountering an unsolvable problem, finds her son and just presents the issue, right? This is not, where would he find? He's not a, 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 he doesn't have a vineyard. He doesn't press wine. This is not what he does for a living. He's a carpenter, remember, up until this point. But she goes to him because this is her son and this is the person that's always solved the problems. Yet as one writer notes, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and gets reproached for it. She is possibly prodding him to reveal himself in a powerful display as the Messiah. Uh, thus, the added rebuke of saying, my hour has not yet come. In other words, it's not time for that to happen. It, and my revealing and my ministry is not on your timetable, is what he's reminding her. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce notes, now, after the long silent years at Nazareth, he had entered on his public ministry. Everything, including family ties, must be subordinated to this. And there's truth to be learned there, and it's truth for all of us. The fact was, earthly relationships would not determine his heavenly purpose. They would not determine his actions. His response to his mom, and woman sounds harsher than it's supposed to sound, uh, that we don't have a good word to translate that. So a lot of people say it's like saying ma'am, but that's almost too soft. If you go to the South, uh, kids have to say ma'am to their Mom, right? Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. And so we, we will always pollute the expression. It's a very neutral word. 
Uh, it's respectful, but it's not necessarily warm. It's not mom or mommy or mother or even. It, it's woman. It, it is a sense of putting distance there. But he's letting her know something that her relationship to him needs to go from an earthly perspective and needs to now be at an eternal level. And in all reality, as we engage with Christ, which is the whole goal of the Gospel of John, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the whole goal of John's writing is that you're confronted with the reality that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you need a Savior, that you need a Messiah. Uh, for the believer, it's to confront our casual way of, of connecting with Christ, our buddy system, so to speak, that we do, the fact that we forget that he is God. As MacArthur notes, Mary was to relate to him no longer as her son, but as her Messiah, the Son of God, and her Savior. We're to connect to Christ under the same presupposition, to see him uniquely as Savior and Lord, and to understand that our earthly relationships and even existence do not determine or direct his actions and purpose. We are to serve his greater purpose. It says in Romans that he works all things for our good, for the good of his glory, which is our greatest good that we can accomplish. But we sometimes grab our faith and turn it into a magic omen that we're going to swing around to get what we want in life, to direct the Lord's ministry, to line up with what we want, what we see as what we deserve that would make our life more convenient. Imagine how much more convenient it would have been for Mary in a local town, so to speak, amongst family. She's lived with the shame, so to speak, of having a baby out of wedlock. There's, there's derogatory comments in John by the Pharisees about Christ's birth. Imagine the opportunity for him to prove that he's the Son of God by doing this miracle. But the miracle's purpose was not to make Mary's reputation any better. It wasn't to be used or manipulated for that purpose. But what we find in this situation and conversation is a beautiful display of faith. Her response, as Carson notes, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored because what happens at the end seems to be exactly what she was asking for. And this unique mother-son conversation ends up with her accepting his correction. Now, whenever I read this, I always looked at it, and he says, what does this have to do with me? By the way, he says, what do you have to do with me? The, the Greek reads more like this. What does this have in common with you and me? What does this situation have to do with you and our situation? He's, he's shifting her focus. She's zeroed in on this wedding and the lack of wine, and she's coming to Christ and saying, do something. You're God. Do something about this. And he's saying, what, is this, what does this have to do with you and I? How does this play between us? My hour's not come. And that's, a, that, again, that push saying, don't manipulate this situation for your good or what you think might be best. And then she responds, and I always look at this. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. And his mom says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And it feels like the classic mom move, right? Hearing her son make some protest. Oh, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to kiss that aunt. And she says, do it anyway, right? It's that classic ignoring and just moving on. Um, but it's not her just bypassing what he has said. It's actually her displaying a deep trust and acceptance now of their true relationship. 
It is her embracing the internal relationship he has with her son, the son of God, because Mary in this moment trusts Jesus and leaves the outcome in his hands. This was not actually a manipulative move on her part. This was her actually letting go of what she's doing. Hey, they don't have wine. What she's saying is, make wine, make this go away, solve this problem my way. And when he rebukes her and says, this is not what I'm doing. This is not where our relationship centers. When she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you, she has now removed the solution from her control and her hand, and she has set it with complete trust into Christ's hands. She just says, you do what he tells you. And obviously you can see she has charge over the servants and what they need to do and, and, and is now just saying, I will embrace my relationship with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, we also need to embrace our true relationship with Christ. He is our Savior and Lord. He is our Redeemer. It is His purpose that must be preeminent and not our own. We're going to see by what Christ does that God is gracious and he's loving, and he cares about our circumstances, and he works through those circumstances. He's not a callous God. He's not a distant God at all. But we must, in our heart and in our attitude, recognize that our purpose is not preeminent for our lives, but instead, the preeminent purpose is his and not our own. As we walk the journey of life, we are not to attempt to manipulate the outcome of it, but instead, simply trust him and leave the results in his sovereign hand. She doesn't just throw her hands up. It's also not what's there. She does the one thing she needed to do. Listen to Jesus. That's what she tells the servants. And goes away trusting this will work. So this somewhat difficult exchange between mother and son thus helps to shape Christ's first miracle and ensure that it fulfills his timing and purpose. He's not doing this miracle for Mary's glory. She's not doing this no matter how it would help her relationship with other people, no matter how it would help her reputation. What he's done with this conversation is ensure that the focus is on Jesus' glory and the faith of the disciples and Mary. So all of this builds towards the solution. This is verses 6 through 11. And we get a little backdrop here. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, letting us know what tradition called for. You needed to constantly clean your hands. You'd hate to be sinful with dirty hands is the idea. Containing two or three firkins apiece, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And every detail, John is always detailed, is important. All of these things come out. They're, they're proving a point every time. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. Another important detail. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now." This beginning of miracles of Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, 
and his disciples believed on him. And so here we are with some details. We were at a feast, a wedding feast, and so you need significant water for people to feel ceremonially clean, and let's be honest, to clean the dishes and the pots, everything else. Uh, two to three firkins, I don't know about you, means nothing to me. Uh, so you have to do a little bit of digging, and, and basically it holds about 17 to 25 gallons apiece. So you're looking about 100 to 150 gallons total of water, which when it's water, it seems like nothing. These are all used to clean hands, to clean pots for purification. This was a typical practice of the Jews. Mark 7, 3 through 4 says this, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. They would do well in our culture. They would have been able to sit at every bathroom and tell you to wash your hands for 20 seconds, whatever's necessary to make sure you kill every germ that's on them. Holding, and understand what they're holding to, holding to the tradition of the elders, the oral tradition, man's law, what man has come up with. And when they came from the marketplace, they didn't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. In other words, the Jews had a tradition of ceremonial cleaning. They have built this up to mean more than it was supposed to mean. And what we see is that John is making sure we, the audience, clearly are understanding the background of the miracle. He drives us to see the physical components that are there. Water stored in ceremonial cleaning pots, filled to the brim. Why is he telling us they filled it to the brim? Why to the top? Why is that important? Well, we want you to understand that there's nothing but water in there. There was no trick that could have been pulled. The water's filled to the top. It wasn't wine that they pretended to dip out of here that was already in a, in a pitcher, but instead they had to go into a full basin. There's no gimmick that could take place. There's only water in these water pots, yet... By the Creator's word, this water becomes wine and is the best wine possible. All this comes with a subtle spiritual implication. What are the pot's main purpose? To fulfill oral tradition. We, the Pharisees, they would be the, the top of the legalistic food chain. They have the rules, the oral traditions. They've kept them. They've, they've perpetuated these uh, since the time of the of Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrated the temple, and you have this whole group of people. It starts from a good place to, to, to hold true to the Jewish faith, and then they've built over time this oral tradition that has now over, overcome. It's, it's been more important than Scripture, and so this traditional thing, this old order of Jewish law and custom, is represented in these pots. There they sit. That's why he's telling us they're, they're pots for purifying. They're pots for cleaning your hands. This is how you got clean in the old way. And yet from those pots, Jesus brings forth something far better. And so right at the start of his first miracles, there's layers of understanding. Most commentators, when they're talking about the Gospel of John, they, they write that the Gospel of John is written to be reread that you need to read it over and over again, that the, the depth of John is designed to come out as we chew on it, as we think about it, as we read it and study it, that you, you can't, being the Word of God, plummets depths in one reading. That you'll constantly see this. And so layered in this miracle, 
We're seeing John pointing to something, right? He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. And he's driving everyone that would read it to see what is happening, what will be far better than anything else. And so understanding that backdrop, we find the people embracing the outcome. First, we embrace the earthly reaction or result. We find astonishment. The servants bring this newly created wine from the Creator, which, if you think about it, Christ has just sped up what He does naturally. Water falls from earth, the plants grow, water goes into grapes, grapes get smashed, they get turned into wine. God is orchestrating that whole process. If you go to Hebrews, this world is in His hand. It says, for Jesus Christ holds it in His hands. The function of our world, all of nature, is under the hand under the guidance of the creator of Jesus Christ. And so here we see Christ fast forward it to take what he has built in nature and turn it into an immediate circumstance. The word of Jesus Christ creates wine. Dip it out and there is wine. And upon tasting it, the head guest, and this is a a person that would have been selected out of the guest to taste everything and verify that everything that is served at this wedding is of an appropriate quality. You couldn't mix in junk because this, this governor, this ruler, and, and by context, by him saying everyone always serves the best and then later the worst, after men have drunk, after, uh, and it doesn't mean that people were just laying over intoxicated at this feast. It means that in the experience of time that he's been in, he's been a ruler of many feasts, no doubt, that he's seen the result of this. And he's saying this is not the norm. And so when he tastes this wine, he's blown away. The, the, the level of his astonishment can be seen really in the fact that as he comes to um, the groom, which he would never interfere with the groom's feast, that's not what he would do, but it so blows his mind that he's now going to the groom and saying, "Um, I don't know what in the world you're doing. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Most people serve what's worst at the end. After everyone has been drinking for a while, we serve the worst, the less flavorful but you've saved the best for last. You've reversed the order. And I put a couple notes. Clearly, this is not water. It could not have been wine-flavored water. This is the best wine he's ever tasted, proclaimed to be so by someone who has no idea from where it originated. There's people out there, skeptics, that say, well, the governor of the feast, it was all a big joke to them. And he's pretending like this new water, water, is so good, it's the original wine. And, and, and the whole context of John tells you otherwise. He has no idea where it's coming from. Who knows? Only the servants who drew the wine. Everything that John writes is driving to this idea that this was water. And I hope you picked up a little bit on the grossness of filling water pots full that people use to wash their hands. Uh, they don't say they clean the pots out. So I just want you to know how kind of gross this is starting out. But they, they dip in and they, they've got this and they bring it to him and he breaks protocol because he cannot imagine good wine being served last or the best wine, not just slightly better. He's shocked and so he engages with the groom and pulls him aside out of his own wedding feast to question him. 
yet the miracle brought an added bonus. Obviously, this couple is not flush with cash. That's why they've cut it too close. They've, they've not prepared enough, and to them, Jesus just gave abundant provision. The feast would not require the use of all those gallons. It's not that they didn't have any wine. It's that, that at some point in the feast, they ran out of wine. I can't imagine that they had just enough wine for one day or one serving. Everyone would know that wouldn't be enough wine. What they've done is they've cut it too close. They're tight, and so they made a decision on, let's not get that extra jug of wine, or they couldn't afford any more. And so this new couple ends up with a large supply of wine as they transition into their new life together. Remember, this is 100 to 150 gallons of wine. Saved from an embarrassing and potentially costly mistake and now blessed with abundant provision to begin their marriage. And this is what I mentioned before when we talked about we serve his purpose. He's preeminent in what we do. That our purpose is not first. And that we are, in the earthly relationships, they are to be subordinated to our relationship with Christ. That our relationship with him reigns supreme. And yet, as we come to the end of this miracle, we find God interjecting into a very difficult situation for a couple, for a family, and we see that he's a gracious and caring God, that he has solved a problem, and then while solving that problem, has brought provision for the future. But the point of miracles is not temporal relief nor was it just for astonishment, nor did Christ do it to have a wow factor or to prove his point or to tell everyone his mom was right and to help her reputation. All of those might be byproducts of a miracle, but the reason for a miracle is always eternal. It's never a performance to get applause. It's never there for accolades. That's why you can know the frauds that are out there with their healing powers and all their gimmicks and tricks. What is it? It's a performance. It's always been a performance, and it's always done to get money. But when you look to Christ, none of what he did was for a performance at all. Everything was done to fulfill the ultimate purpose of mankind and everything in creation, to manifest his glory. And that's exactly what this miracle did. It manifested his glory, revealing who Jesus really was. He's God. He's the creator. He's the Messiah. He is our Lord and Savior. And what does the verse 11 kind of close with? That the disciples, and I would say both current and new, believed. The miracles brought about a deeper faith or brought about faith to start, original faith. The miracle did exactly what it's supposed to do, and every miracle is designed to do, and that's point to Christ, to elevate him, to glorify him. The greatest good of man is to glorify God. That's what we're here for. That's our purpose. And hopefully, as people read the Gospel of John, many, as MacArthur notes, would come to believe as they did. That's what John's writing about. He stated his purpose, and his first miracle is, is doing exactly that. The first miracle that Christ did, first official miracle, ends with that it manifested God's glory and that people believed. And so the story moves, verse 12, while this 
After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And so we find Jesus now shifting to a town on the Sea of Galilee, a thriving town. <coughs> this is where Peter and Andrew had a house uh, to move aside the, the false impression that they were just country bumpkins walking around trying to make a living catching a few fish. These guys had a prominent house next door to the synagogue. They've moved from Bethsaida. They have a thriving business going on. These are small business people. These are as American as you can get, to be honest with you, Peter and John and James and Andrew running a business. And so they head down to Capernaum. This is where Christ's ministry around Galilee will be based and it says that he, he doesn't stay there many days, which helps us understand uh, the next segment, which is, I, I find, a fascinating one. It's something that, again, John only referenced, and that's the first Passover that Christ participates in. The other Gospels don't talk about it. And it's actually his first cleaning of the temple. And so we're told this transitional verse carries us to Capernaum, lets us know everyone's with them, and we're prepared for the next segment because they're not going to stay in Capernaum long because they're going to be journeying down to Jerusalem where Christ will dive into that first Passover and where he'll clean the temple for the first time. He does it later in his ministry a second time. So Jesus and company arrived in Cana, attended a wedding, which helps us recognize the importance of marriage and the family. There he guides Mary, his mother, into the right viewpoint of their relationship, one that is eternal and not just temporal, one that sees him correctly as our Lord and Savior and focuses on the purpose of God. We as believers, we as humans are to grab hold of that conversation and not just say, whew, that was awkward, glad I'm not Mary, and instead recognize that that conversation is given to all of us, that we must get the right viewpoint of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet he still solves the temporal problem she shared with him by creating wine, as fits the creator of the world, helping a couple avoid embarrassment and showing all present and all who read of it that he is God Almighty. So as we've walked through this miracle, as we've read it and we've studied it, there's a couple things that I think are helpful for us to, to kind of attach to as we transition into more of Christ's life. In all honesty, his, his ministry is just beginning. This is at the inception of it. But as we begin that journey, as we see what he's done at the wedding in Canaan, as we've seen how he's responded to his mom, as we've seen what he's accomplished and that his glory is manifested, a couple things I want us to think about. Are we seeing the Lord God Almighty? When we see Jesus, do we see God Almighty? The vernacular of our world doesn't communicate that. Because he's not a buddy that hangs out with you. He's not your wingman. It's actually a gross misrepresentation of Jesus Christ. It's offensive. Because he's not your guy. He's your redeemer. And one of the things we see at the inception of, of the Gospel of John is get the right idea who God is. And recognize that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He is your Savior, but he is most definitely your Lord, and you're to serve him as such. And this first miracle is directing us. His conversation with his own mother is directing us to see him the right way. I put, are we setting aside our temporal efforts to dictate our relationship with Jesus, our Messiah and Savior? Because we tend to tell Jesus 
how we will relate to him. That's what Mary said. She came to him as mom to earthly son, and he says, that's not how we are interacting. That is not the right way to do this. And are we going to set aside our temporal ways that we want to grab Jesus and make him do for us what we want instead of recognizing the preeminence of his purpose and the right of, of his to direct our life and to dictate what the relationship is? Are we setting aside our time frame and instead embracing his? Mary wanted a miracle there. She wanted a solution now in her time frame, in her way. And Christ says, I will work on my time frame. And my purpose cannot be dictated by anything else. Every relationship is subordinate to his relationship. Every time frame we lay out needs to be subordinate to his time frame and eternal purpose. And then as a close, are we stepping into his purpose? God's glory and the belief of his children. What is preeminent for our lives? What was preeminent in this wedding? I know if you're the groom, you're happy to see the wine show up. You're happy to have the provision. But what is the closing comment here? It manifested God's glory, and it brought about the belief of his children. Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for the time we have to gather together to study your word. As we embark on this first miracle, this first official miracle that we see performed here, and we recognize that uh, at this miracle you teach us a lot, that there's a lot of layers to what's there. But as we focus in on, on what the driving point of the miracle is, it is for us to see your glory and to recognize that our purpose is to elevate you and your glory, that we are called to bring glory to our Savior. Confront our hearts as we get consumed with our timetable. Even from a ministry standpoint, we get tied up with what we want in the way we want at the time we want it. And instead, help us uh, to subject ourselves correctly, submit to you and to your purpose and to your timing, to the preeminence of your purpose, to the preeminence of your will, recognizing that we've been left on earth not to promote our kingdom and not to promote our purpose and not to succeed as the world would count success, but instead we're left here as ambassadors of you, that our role is to point to you constantly. And, and Lord, I hope that you press that upon us, that we can't escape that conviction that that is something we must do, something we desire to do, and something at the end of the life we can say, I have served his purpose and not my own. In your precious and holy name, amen. Mm -hmm.